Last week's Colossian sermon, I talked about our glory in Christ. To enjoy and establish God's glory for us, we need to walk with Christ and watch out for false philosophies. Today, I want to talk about our freedom in Christ. These days, just like the first century in Greco-Roman world, we have a many threat to our freedom. For instance, this Tuesday midterm election is a critical occasion for our freedom. We have so much exaggerated political news and even fake news. I'm so glad that Catherine prayed about I want to tell you, right now, the most important thing for us to do is to vote. So vote. Not to vote is another political choice and a bad choice. And I want to remind you that so many people in our world, in so many countries like Venezuela, Syria, Iran, Myanmar, and China, they die for our basic constitutional right. So don't ever take this blessing of constitutional right voting for granted. So please vote. Amen? Can I get an amen? Okay, I think amen is weak. Amen? amen. All right, those of you who say amen, I count you to vote. I'm praying to God to help, for God to help us, especially our discernment in this critical time about our country. Likewise, to enjoy gospel freedom, we must be also aware of a counterfeit fake freedoms. There's a good Christian theology book called The Story of a Christian Theology, written by Baylor Truett Seminary professor named Roger Olson, because even though most systematic theology books is a very philosophical abstract, this is a very narrative. So it's like a reading a story. So it's a really well-written book. In that book, Roger Olson debunks a Christian urban myth. Quote, popular misconception is the United States Secret Service never shows a bank tellers counterfeit money when teaching them how to identify them. The training agents show bank tellers only examples of a genuine money so that when the phony money appears, the bank tellers will know it by its difference from the real thing. You know, this story is used to make a point that Christians should study only the truth and not concern ourselves with examples of a heresy or false teachings. Well, Roger Olson finds out that story is actually not correct at all. He checked with Treasury Department, Minneapolis Secret Service agent in charge of a training bank tellers, and when he told them the story, the agent laughed, and he said, Secret Service does indeed show examples of a counterfeit money to bank tellers so they can identify the fake money right away. Today's text in Colossians, Paul, Apostle Paul, is going to show us the counterfeit spirituality. Counterfeit spirituality. The fake you know, kind of spirituality that steals our freedom in supreme Christ. So with that in mind, let's read our text together. Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 16 to 23 responsively. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported, held together by its ligament and sinews, grows as God causes to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Flowers fall, grass with, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Do you remember what I said about the relevance of a Colossian church's struggle to ours? Colossian church was threatened by false teachers that Christ was not enough, and they needed to have other things to be fully spiritual. Likewise, we are surrounded by the world which constantly advertises that we need Christ plus something to be to have everything. Colossian challenge is ongoing. That's why the theme of our Colossian study is that Christ plus nothing equals everything because Christ alone is enough. Today's passage begins with a therefore, which refers to earlier verse 9 and 10. So let me read a 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of a deity dwells bodily, and you have been Filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. The term fullness in Greek is a preloma. Preloma. Actually, it means fulfillment. This was a religious term. So Gnostics, they use this term to describe the totality of a spiritual reality. And the Greek people used the word pleroma to describe a ship packed with goods and sailors and merchants. In other words, very successful, fulfilled thing. So, Pearloma, that's the, you know, that's the opposite of uh, empty or unfulfilled. The question is, what does it mean that we live in the fullness of a Christ? To live in the Christ fullness means to live freely in Christ. Freely in Christ. And in order to live freely in Christ, we must learn to detect and protect ourselves against three spiritual counterfeits that threaten 
supremacy of a Christ fullness for our freedom. So today I'm going to share with you three spiritual counterfeit or fake, you know, uh, spirituality with you. The first counterfeit spirituality Apostle Paul warns us about is a legalism and the sidekick called ritualism. Look at the verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to religious festival or new moon uh, celebration or Sabbath day. Legalism is the idea that we can get close to God if we obey certain rules. It is a performance-based spirituality that promises higher level of a spirituality based on what we do or don't do it. Tim Keller, in his uh, commentary for Galatians, gave a very clear you know, definition. Legalism is looking to something beside Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. So legalism always tries to add to the work of Christ. For legalists, Christ's work on the cross is never enough. So instead of faith in Christ alone, it is always Christ plus works. But as soon as you add a works into the picture as a means of acceptance by God, it is no longer faith alone. So legalists in Colossae taught that they had to abide by the Jewish uh, dietary law and observe Jewish festivals in order to be recognized by God. And unfortunately, the young, insecure Colossian uh, church and Christians were allowing these false teachers to judge them and to intimidate them and make them feel you know, inferior because they were not observing Jewish ceremonial law. And to them, Paul today ordered that don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone judge you. How about us? How about us? I find a parallel to these legalistic observances and the attitudes among Christians. For instance, many devout Roman Catholics used to be against eating meat on Friday because Friday Jesus suffered on the cross. Good Friday. So Fish Friday became a synonym for devout Roman Catholic faith. What do you think? Eating fish will make you more you know, more spiritual to God. This kind of idea is so ludicrous. How about some evangelical Christians? They are very strict about observing Sunday as a Sabbath. You know, once I heard that some Christians criticized the late uh, Reggie White. Do you know who Reggie White is? Great soup, you know, uh, uh, player. Two-time NFL Defense Player of the Year. Do we have a picture of it? Reggie White? Oh, yeah. He was selected 13 times pro ball. And his nickname, Minister of Defense. You know why they call him Minister of Defense? Not because he's so good at defense. He was an ordained pastor and devout Christian. But some Christians criticize Reggie White because he is playing football on Sunday, the Sabbath. In the past, Baptists and the many conservative Christians in America condemned drinking, dancing, playing cards, except Uno, and watching a movie at a theater. Actually, I feel that nowadays a pendulum swung the other way. 
of a legalism, so-called antinomianism, or licentious you know, uh, behaviors, perhaps influenced by, the, uh, by a postmodern relativism and situational ethic, we don't even hold any religious regulation seriously at all. People have this mindset as, like, uh, as long as uh, I'm feeling good and no, I'm not hurting anybody, it's okay for me to do whatever. You know, drinking, you know, late in the evening or night, or smoking pot, all those things. Peter Kraft, a professor of philosophy at Boston College and a great uh, Christian, actually, philosopher, said this, moral stupidity comes in two different forms, relativism and legalism. Relativism sees no principle, only people. Whatever people believe it is a right to them. And legalism sees no people, only principles. Both relativism and legalism are wrong because they fail to put God above principles and people. And whenever you, we put principles or people above God, we fail to have a right perspective. And the antinomianism and legalism, they do not reflect Christ's costly grace either. Now, more than legalism and antinomianism, I think the real spiritual uh, lies and the con, you know, that is more rampant in the midst of us is ritualism. Ritualism. What is a ritualism? Ritualism is a partaking religious act only in outward appearance without inner appropriation. You are participating without heart. It's a going through the motion or checking the box. So let me ask you, do you want to check if you are ritualistic or real in worship? Do you want to? Yes? No answer, huh? Okay. Let me ask you some questions to check yourself. When you sing praise songs, do you internalize the lyrics personally? Or do you just uh, do a sing-along like a karaoke? Are you more melody-driven or lyric-driven? When someone, like a Catherine today, prays, do you pray with them or do you let your mind wander? Do you take it as a nap time? Do you follow their prayers and quietly say amen throughout the prayer or just say amen at the end? When you hear a sermon, do you go somewhere else in your mind? Or do you actively engage with God and believe that God has a message for you? You know, when you stand up here, you see everyone very well. I hope one day you come up and sit here. Serious. I mean, stand here. And when I look out at you from this platform, you all seem to be listening. You look at me, your faces reflect interest in what I'm saying. But I know from sad experience, that's not always true. Some of you right now at games, wondering how your team is doing. Some of you at the field, thinking about putting. Some of you at the work, planning business meeting. And some of you already at the fellowship hall, wondering, with whom and what we're going to, you're going to talk about. Some of you already back home thinking about the dinner. 
You know, it would be really interesting to know at the end of service where everybody has been. We all find our attention wandering at times. But I want to tell you this. Do not let yourself get into a habit of ritualism because God is offended by empty ritualism. Listen to Isaiah 1, verse 13 to 15. God, through Isaiah, speaking this, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Have you seen God this emotional somewhere? God cannot stand ritualistic attitude and the worship. Now, what's wrong about you know, some of the rules and rituals? Didn't God give those things anyway? Especially, are there some kind of values, whatever, in the mental, physical values? Apostle Paul gives us an answer why this you know, uh, legalism and ritualism is wrong. Look at the verse 17. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. Reality, however, is found in Christ. These rules and rituals are the shadow of a coming reality, which is Christ. The Greek word for reality is a soma, which means a body. In other words, Paul was telling us all the Old Testament laws and rituals of a shadow of Christ. You know, shadows are, are pictures given in advance, designed to prepare us for something coming. And if you found the Christ, you do not need our shadows anymore. Speaking about pictures, you know, <clears throat> even though I have a smartphone, but I still carry pictures of my wife and my children when they were young. They are so cute. I think they're cuter than now. And uh, I take them out. Uh, actually, I, 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 I carry them on my wallet, you know, to be ready to, you know, uh, ready for the people who show their pictures to me. But I value this photography and, uh, you know, look at them occasionally when I'm away from them. But what did you think if I propped up all these pictures all over my house and talked to them and uh, tried to relate to them? you probably think that I lost my mind. Imagine when they came home Thanksgiving, if I continue to do that, they probably say the old man is gone. That's what Paul says is wrong with the shadows. If you still place the primary value on the shadows, after the reality has come, you are really, really destroying the meaning of the reality. Now the reality is Jesus Christ. Is a center of our life and source of excitement in Christian life. He's the one whom we need to remember and observe and celebrate and eat and drink with. Paul is saying without Christ, every ritual is meaningless and empty. Christ makes our ritual, everything we do in the church, real and powerful. Amen?
Okay, someone said clearly amen. Rest of you, you're ritualistic. Anyway, you know, I'm a side, side point I'm coming out of. You know, one thing I love about uh, worshiping with uh, some of African-American brothers and sisters, they don't just uh, be polite. They participate. I preached, uh, you know, African-American church. Fun. Because uh, organists play, preach with me. Whatever, you know. I saw, you know, incredible. I wish I, but it's natural. Anyway, we need to learn to participate. But anyway, our participation is more like this. You know, that's our participation. Okay, I know I have a part in it too. But now, second counterfeit spirituality Apostle Paul warns us about is mysticism. Look at the verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by the ligament and sinews and grows as God causes to grow. If a legalism is a re relying on the religious rules for acceptance by God instead of what Christ has done for them at the cross, mysticism is a relying on spiritual experiences for status within the church instead of finding your place in the body of Christ. You know, the danger of a mysticism is they disqualify other people with their own experiences. So Paul gives a warning here, don't let anyone disqualify you with their experiences. And the word qualify is actually an athletic term that is related to Greek word for umpire. Paul is saying that false teachers were relying on their religious experience to determine who really ranked in the church. And if you didn't have the same type of experiences that they are having, just like an umpire, they were saying, you are out. You don't qualify. Your game is over. The false teachers were acting like self-appointed spiritual referees who are disqualifying the Colossians because they didn't have a certain religious experiences. And the two religious experiences they highlight today were worship of angels and visions. Worship of angels and visions. So, Let's look at the worship of angels first. You know, Greeks are known for their dualistic thinking. The spiritual invisible world is a better and higher than material visible world. They also believe God is so far above us. God is so transcendent. And so we can only worship God in the, through the series of angelic intermediaries. So that's the you know, angels who are worshipped. But such a Greek dualistic spirituality, especially with an, coupled with an angel, you know, worship of an angel, they are wrong according to the Bible. First of all, this teaching denies Christ as a sole mediator between God and man. According to 1 Timothy 2.5, there is a one God, one mediator between God and man, and the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator we need between God and man, not a series of angels. And then also a second problem with the worship of an angel is that Bible told Bible clearly tell us 
we are not supposed to worship angels. For instance, if you look at uh, Revelation chapter 19, Apostle John trying to worship the angel, and this is what angel said. You, uh, then I fell down at his feet worshiping, and the angel said to me, you must not do it. I'm fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, parenthesis alone. You know, actually angels are the servant for God's children, according to Hebrews 1.14. Hebrews 1.14 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit the salvation? Now, regarding visions, mystics probably had a visions by extreme fasting and ascetic practices Paul discusses in the next section. They are obviously very proud about these visions because Apostle Paul says that they went in great detail about what they have seen. And the problem with the mysticism, Paul says, is that people who rely on religious experience actually display false humility. False humility, which is really just pride in disguise. Paul says of such a person, his unspiritual mind pops him up with idle notions. You know, Greek word for the unspiritual mind is actually mind of a flesh, sarcos, mind of a flesh. So the irony here is that uh, these mystics thought they were being uh, so spiritual, but uh, Paul was saying that they are not spiritual at all. They thought they are super spiritual because of their vision. Paul was saying that they are actually unspiritual and flesh, fleshy with the E. Now, I want to say very clearly, there's nothing wrong about the religious experience in and of itself. But listen to me carefully. It is wrong when we compare. When we try to make our experience the standard for someone else's spirituality. When we use our experience as standard to judge other people's or evaluate other people's faith, that's wrong. Or when we make more of our experience than what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I want you to remember this. Religious experience, religious experience does not equal spiritual maturity. Religious experience and spiritual maturity are not commensurate. You know, true test of a spiritual maturity is not what kind of experience you had but actually the knowledge of God's word that makes you more obedient to love God and others. By the way, you know, Apostle Paul has a more mystical experience than anybody in the Bible. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, did you know he's been to the third heaven? He had a raptured experience. But Paul never talked about that. Instead, you know what Paul said? I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except my weakness. Paul said, only thing that I will boast is my weakness because through which I experience the sufficient grace of Christ. So if the problem with the mysticism is a false humility and pride, what's the solution? Solution is stay connected with the Christ. 
Look at the verse 19. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by the ligament and sinews and grows as God calls it. You know, solution is stay connected to the Christ from whom the whole body of Christ grows. The whole, the, the only way to grow as a Christian is stay connected with the Christ. That's what Jesus said, uh, John 15, 5, they remain in me. And I will remain in you, and no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear the fruit unless you remain in me. Stay connected to the Christ from whom the whole body grows, as God causes it to grow. So that means that a spiritual growth comes from God, not from the experience. So key is this, Christ is a central. Christ is a central. And uh, especially I think, you know, passage like this about uh, warning about mysticism, it applies to many people. And I want to, you know, especially, especially to people with a charismatic or Pentecostal church, you know, background and experience, they have to be careful. Actually, we have to be careful because I also consider charismatic and Pentecostal in my own way. Because oftentimes, Pentecostal people, you know, they say like, do you have a baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do you speak in tongue? You know? Actually, I, these days I say, yeah, I speak tongue. My tongue is English. You know, I say, oh, because that's how I speak to God. You, you speak your tongue to speak God, right? I speak my English, and, you know, I'm still learning my tongue. You know? A Hispanic pastor in Texas Baptist, you know, I had a conversation with two pastors, and the one pastor, very proud Latino, he said, do you know what language you will speak in heaven? Spanish. It's so easy for everyone. Right there, other Latino pastor, no brother, no hermano. It's English. What? Because the English is a un I'm sorry, quoting it. Maldito, mal, maldito lengua, it takes an eternity to learn. And I say, you're right. I said, yeah, I think we'll speak English in heaven. You know, Jesus will, you know, have a, you know, Jesus will speak English with a Jewish accent, and I'm going to speak with a Spanglish accent, so, so forth. Point is this. You know, people always take a mystery outside of Christ. And that's really problematic. The mystery of all mystery is Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul tried to say in, in Colossians? You know, incarnation. What is a greater than uh, incarnation of, I mean, what is a greater mystery than incarnation of Christ? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Frederick Buchanan once said, uh, you know, this idea of incarnation is a cosmic joke that God did it to humans. Because the creator came in diaper. Creator came to us with a diaper. It's a God's cosmic joke to human. Is there anything greater mystery than cross of Christ? The Son of God died helplessly along with the human criminals 
and the angels all fidgeting in heaven and ready to come down, rescue him, and strike all the evil doors. And throughout the whole time, he was repeating, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is there any greater mystery than Christ? People are talking about spiritual mystic experience. They don't know. I'm sorry. They over, overlook and bypass the mystery, the greatest mystery. We still need to really fathom around, and eternity we're going to fathom, or, you know, fathom. You know, John Wesley, I want to say this. John Wesley, there is a great biography written uh, about John Wesley. I forgot to put up in our slide, but uh, written by uh, Stephen Tompkins. It's an uh, English season's journalist. And I think among the, all the biography about John Wesley, that's the best. Title, John Wesley, A Biography. That's the title. And he is uh, different from other historians because unlike other Christian historians read the other Christian books about John Wesley, he actually read the, all the journals written by John Wesley. And he wrote a voluminous journal. He backed up everything with that journal. According to the journal, John Wesley... By the way, those of you know who John Wesley founder of a Methodist church. You know. John Wesley, he, was a, he had a more spiritual experience than anybody you know, that I know of. And the, all the what charismatic people talk about, the spiritual, you know, uh, supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit, John Wesley experienced in his ministry. John Wesley is famous for his statement, the world is my parish. You know, this is a slogan that a lot of times you see in the mission conference. Isn't it great? World is my parish, right? By that, John, actually, John Wesley actually meant not the world, the globe, but he was talking about outdoor, everywhere is a place to do the ministry. Because when John Wesley converted, he really had a disappointing experience. He wanted to bring a revival to the Anglican Church, but the uh, Anglican Church was so traditional or ritualistic that uh, many Anglican Church pastors, they would, they would refuse John Wesley coming to their church to preach. So many times, John Wesley had to preach outdoor, tavern, Meeting hall, city hall, you name it, wherever people are, that's where he preached. And the, sometimes, this a local Anglican priest, they hire the town thugs to go and disrupt the revival meeting. And this, some of the thugs came to John Wesley's, you know, uh, uh, worship, a uh, meeting, Wesleyan or Methodist meeting. When they entered, many times, they felt spiritual heaviness and the power they enter to disrupt, but they are passing out at the door or hallway. And that's, that's the term, slain in the spirit, born. You know, some of you in the charismatic, if you know charismatic, they use the word slain in the spirit. You're slain by the spirit. You just passed out. And then, use, you know, you guys have heard about holy laughter? You know what holy laughter? You feel the joy of the Holy Spirit. You couldn't stop laughing. First time Holy Laughter happened was a John Wesley's meeting. All kinds of things happened. All kinds of spiritual manifestations. You know what John Wesley said every time those things happened? Please, listen to my preaching. Pay attention to Jesus. Don't pay attention to those who, you know, passed out. Leave them alone. You focus on Jesus. Focus is on Jesus. 
not in this kind of spiritual you know, manifestation. Because the greatest mystery of all is Jesus Christ. Amen? People who speak about all these visions and mysteries and mysticism, they don't know the true mystery of all. Final counterfeit spirituality Paul wants us is asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is a relying on spiritual religious act of a self-denial to grow in holiness. Danger with asceticism is that people take each other's freedom away by condemning things that God already called good. So Paul warns us, don't let anyone enslave you with asceticism. Look at the verse 20 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as, you, though, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not haste, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with the use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have a appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Here we must distinguish the biblical asceticism and the pagan asceticism. You know, Jesus told us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. So self-denial that Jesus calls us to do, listen to me, is not to deny the goodness of a material creation and bodily blessings that God made for us. It's simply to discipline our body so that our body can follow the desire of the Spirit. That is a Christian meaning of a biblical asceticism. In contrast, pagan ascetics in Colossae were denying everything physical as a evil and inferior. They are really disparaging God's good creation. Do you see the difference? So Paul said, their slogan is actually verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul used their, you know, slogan and saying that do not, you know, handle, do not taste, do not touch this kind of a pagan asceticism. So Paul turned their slogan upside, you know, head on upside, upside, whatever. Now, Paul said such asceticism is a man-made, seemingly impressive, but actually self-interested. Worship of self rather than God. And once again, Paul said, it comes from false humility. Paul used the false humility twice. The harsh treatment of a body and false humility. I, I, I'm sadly sharing this as among some uh, pretentious pastors and so-called spiritual leaders. I see that a lot. Actually, I have a friend who once, you know, I invited to the college retreat of my church. And then during the sermon, he said he did a fasting for 40 days, fasting for 40 days for twice. And students were all blown away and impressed. So I asked him afterward, how did you do? He, he said he was drinking the liquid, you know, nutrition for 40 days. 
I don't think that's the you know, way that Moses fasted in the, you know, in, the, in the Mount Sinai or Jesus in the wilderness. I don't think they had that, what is called it, the senior citizens drinking. I don't think they had it. You know? False humility. So let me ask you, how does spiritual discipline really work then? Paul says solution is this, that we died with Christ. The real spiritual power comes from our union with Christ. Because I died with Christ and living with Christ, Christ has done is a mind. And this is how we overcome all the sensual indulgences and temptations. I want to go quick to the point. Do you know how we grow holy? Let me share. If you look at the uh, history of a Christian monastic movement, it is a very, not just interesting, but uh, insightful and instructive. Monastic movement, basically, that's where the monks, they, you know, they follow. Monks, you know, monks came from the word monakos. In Greek word, mono means only. Alone. Monacos is solitary people. Monacos. From Monacos, we got monks. You know, there is a country called Monaco in the Mediterranean world, far from the idea of monks. They are the, they, they are the contradiction of the, what Monaco actually means. Anyway, and the early, you know, there are, do we have that one? Do we, we have, there's a two kinds of a monasticism. It's called the Aramidic monasticism and Cenobitic monasticism. Okay. Aramidic came from the Greek word Aramos, which means a desert. From the Aramidic, we got English word hermit. Hermit. Because they are individual monks who try to really get better spiritually in the, in the desert area. But you know what's the problem? Most of them have a struggling. They have a hard time to, you know, really get better spiritually. So finally, some of them came to great uh, monks like uh, St. Anthony, and they helped them out. And some of these great monks finally put this, all these uh, struggling Aramaic, you know, Aramaic monks or hermits in a community. And they share space and time. That's when they start growing spiritually. And that is called the Cenobitic monasticism. Cenobitic came from the Greek word. Ceno came from the koinos, which means common, and bitic came from bias, common life. What does that mean? Simply put it this. Spiritual discipline must be done communally rather than individually. For our discipline to grow, you do individually, but in the context of a community, that's why, that's how we grow spiritually. By the way, isn't that what you do? Why do you join a fitness club? Paying so much money. Why do you join the fitness club? Because when you see other people exercise, doesn't that motivate you to exercise? Because they're not there to, you know, to check their, you know, face, I mean, their sample in the mirror. They are really working out and sweating. And seeing them motivate you, right? Spiritual growth happens always in community. By the way, this is not a very uh, or, uh, a new idea. 
Jesus, that's how Jesus disciples his disciples. Twelve disciples, Jesus didn't disciple individually. Jesus discipled them together in a community. Now, you know the conclusion of my message. Where does it leave us? House church matters. This is where we confess our failures. This is where we share our struggle. This is where we make each other accountable. We cannot grow individually. We grow individually within the community. For us, house church is not a church program or a small group, just ministry option. No, it is a biblical church. It's a biblical way. This is where we really make each other accountable and the individual spiritual discipline, we see it actually growing and much more we experience the mystery of Christ's presence in our in midst of us together. And, and then we invite the BIPs to our house church and let them see what they are missing in their life. If we don't have the mystery of Christ and the fellowship of Christ in our house church, why in the world do we invite a non-Christian? Unless we love each other as Christ commanded us, what do we show? House? They have a house. Food? They can go to nice restaurants. What our house church has and no world, the world doesn't have is the presence of Christ in our heart and with each other. Let's pray.